Turn with me, if you would, to John chapter 12. We'll be reading verses 19 through verse 23. The Pharisees therefore said unto themselves, Perceive ye how ye prevail nothing? Behold, the world is gone out after him. And there were certain Greeks among them that came up to the worship at the feast. The same came therefore to Philip, which was of Bethsaida, of Galilee, and desired him, saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. Philip comes and tells Andrew, and again Andrew and Philip tell Jesus. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Lord, we pray now that you would guide and direct us, help us to see that you are the glorious Lord, the one who is glorified, has been glorified by his resurrection and seating, having been seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Every tongue and every nation and every people will bow before you and confess that you are God, the Son of God, God of very God, to the glory of the Father. And we ask all these things in thy name, Son's name. Amen. If you would look at our text this morning, when we look, look at our first verse there, it says, the Pharisees therefore. We might ask the reason, now why is that therefore? Because he's looking back at the last verse and you've seen that Christ has come into Jerusalem seated on a donkey. The people have taken their clothes and laid them on before his donkey. They've waved their palm leaves and they've cried out, Hosanna, Hosanna, the King of Israel. And so now they've recognized him and the scribes and the Pharisees, the leaders of Israel, have been seeing this and watching this and they're just aghast. They cannot believe that every time they have tried to do something and even now they have made a public statement that he must die, he's wanted. And so again, we see that they can't understand that and they come aghast and say, now the world has gone out after him. And as we look at that word right off, we must understand that that word has different meanings throughout the Gospel of John. A.W. Pink, one of his articles on John, he talks about it, that this word world, the word cosmos, yes, the word cosmos, the one we talk about, the globe, the, the universe sometimes, that word has about nine different uses. And first of all, we would all know would be the idea that it means universe. It's everything that God has created. The Jews, the Hebrews, have no word for universe. And they would say, and God created the heavens and the earth. There is nothing else in the material world. That's all that God, God has created all those things. Then we would say, it is the earth. It's the globe we live on. That's, that's the world. In other places, John uses to refer to the human race. When we see John 3.16, God so loved the world, the cosmos. It can, it can be referred to all of His creation, but in particular, He's talking about man who believes. God so loved the world, that is the world of men, of mankind, that He, again, sent His only begotten Son to give life to all those who are believing. And in that verse, we see that Christ doesn't say in the world means every single individual, but He says He loved the world so much that He gave His only begotten Son so that all those who are believing, continuously believing in Him, might have life. 
Therefore, only people who believe are saved. The world is the ones that he's going to take to heaven with him. In that passage, there are many other, several other passages that, that refer to that. But we also see it also means the world in the sense that it is uh, ruled by Satan. Now, God rules all. Satan can't do anything that God does not allow him. And so, again, we would say the world is under the hand of Satan. Well, we understand God rules, but yes, God has given it. Man is a sinner, and the predominance of men today are sinners. Again, we see it also, there's a places when it talks about the believers. And then we talk about, again, it is also the con- contrast between the Jews and the Gentiles. In the context there, if you see a man called a Greek or a Gentile in the Scripture, that means he's an unbeliever. All through the New Testament, Greeks, Romans, Jews, or excuse me, Greeks, Romans, uh, Gentiles, the world, pagans, heathens, those words all refer to the world of unbelief, believers. When Christ says, I pray not for the world, he's making a distinction. The world of unbelievers but all those the Father has given to me. And so there again, you understand how that word's used. And so right here, we see these Gentiles are being referred to by the Jews. They're called Gentiles, or the world. And now in the second verse, we see in verse 20, that they, there are certain Greeks. That's what draws the ur of them. Not only do the, are the Jews doing this, now you've got... The Gentiles following the Jews and believing this man's Messiah or something. And so this is the point, but there's a great point of turning in these texts this morning. Though there's a story here, the history about it, but this history means a great bit to us. And so we see now, the Greeks come to him. Remember at this point, the Jews, we're talking about the leaders, but the whole of the nation will at one turn, and they will be desiring to kill him. But at the same time, we see the Greeks, the Gentiles, desiring to see him and meet him. And so now as we find this, we, we see there their voices are being raised, and they're coming in among the people. And these Greeks are a certain type of people, okay? Greek. Now the Jews had set apart the Greeks who believed in some sense in the three class, well, two classes. There would be those who were known as the God-fearers. These would be Gentiles or Greeks or Romans who had a great interest in the religion of the Jews. They would read or could read the Old Testament. They would even, again, eat of the Jewish dietary food. So they had a lot in common, but the God-fearers were interested, but they would not be or have not been circumcised. They were not part of the body. Now, the proselytes were Gentiles who not only had a great interest, but the men had been circumcised And if they were married, their wives and their daughters would have also been cleansed in the temple. And they would be also looked upon as full Jews. And they would keep all the laws of Israel. 
are all the laws of the Old Testament as a Jew. So this is how it's breaking down. And these men have an interest. We, we would say they probably are more God-fearers or they just have a great interest because they have come down at the time of the feast to the feast. And so there is this interest and now they've seen these people who are Jews. They've seen this man, Jesus, get on his donkey and go through as they laid their clothes down and waved their palm leaves and called Him the King of Israel. So they've got this interest. Maybe also you could say these men, if they lived in the north, in what we would call Syrophoenicia, that would be the Syrian-Phoenician area, okay? The two countries come together. Now it's basically Syria, and then, and then you would have Damascus and Lebanon further north of the Sea of Galilee. And so as they come together, they want to see Christ, and they've come to worship. We don't know where they are. But I think, again, when we get down to verse 21, and it says, The same came to Philip, which was of Bethsaida of Galilee. And I think there's a reason for John. John didn't have to say where they were from. He didn't have to say anything about this. But no, he says Bethsaida, and I think he's pointing out, because Bethsaida was in a very north part of Israel. It was on the north end, very north end of the Sea of Galilee, and there were only a few miles between Bethsaida and the border between Syria and the Syrophoenician border, where Christ had already visited. Now, remember, the Syrophoenician woman. It was close so that no doubt the people there had already heard about the miracles of Christ feeding of 5,000 people. Surely there would be Jews going back and forth up in that area. They had heard about Jesus making wine out of water. Maybe of even raising the widow of Nain's son. The many works that he did in that area, they would have been already attuned to. When Jesus goes there, remember though, Jesus' attitude. Their attitude is we want to know who Jesus is. We would see Jesus. We want to talk and have a conversation with Him. But what was Jesus and the disciples' attitude? I don't know so much the disciples, but Jesus had already told the disciples when He had sent them out, when you go out, you do not go in to talk to any of the Gentiles and you don't go into any of the Samaritan cities. Now, He'd already talked to the Samaritan woman early. Remember, the Samaritans were kind of half-Jews. They claimed to be the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But they were also mixed with Gentiles. But now, again, as we see this carried out, Jesus had told them, again, told the Syrophoenician woman, remember, she, he said to her, excuse me, let me go first. Jesus said in Matthew, he says, when he sent them out, I am not, I, I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He was very narrow. When he goes to the Syrophoenician woman, what Jesus says to is interesting. Remember the woman, it also says she's a Greek. And also in Mark it says she's a, she is Greek. So there's two things that are pulling me to think that there's some kind of connection between these Greeks and the Syrophoenician woman and those Greeks because John kind of keeps bringing them together throughout all the Gospels. But nonetheless, we see the woman was there. And remember, Jesus had cast out the demon. But what he had said to her, the woman was a Greek 
a Syrophoenician by nation, and she besought him that he would cast forth the devil out of her daughter. But now, remember, she wouldn't let it go. She kept following him, and the disciples says, Lord, get rid of this woman. She's, she's just drawing everybody to us. I mean, we can't get her to be quiet. She keeps following, calling him Christ, the Son of God. And finally, Christ turned around to her. Remember, he says, But Jesus said unto her, Let the children first be filled, for it is not meet to take the children's bread and cast it unto the dogs. Now, if there's ever you want to call a racist, this is Jesus. He's calling her what the Jews call all the Gentiles, a dog. She understands that. She gets the point. She understands Christ has come to save His people from their sins. But now, that's not all. She just won't let Him go. And now, when Jesus makes this comment and says, you're a dog, she says, yes, Lord. But the dogs eat the crumbs from under the table of the children. Jesus takes back. He says, never have a sound faith even in Israel. So she set the pattern, but now when she comes to Philip, the question has to be, is Jesus still want us to follow what He's told us, that we should not talk to the Gentiles because He's only come for the Jews? They've probably bought into that idea a little bit with all the other Jews, but Christ has not said that in the sense that He's going to have nothing to do with them. So when we look back in the Old Testament, we find Christ had already promised in the Old Testament, He would save the Gentiles. We find that after the flood, when Noah's sons come off of the ark, and Noah's blessing them, and He says that again, Shem shall dwell in the house and the tents with Jehovah. Japheth will be the Gentiles, but they will be, again, they will not be Canaanites, but nonetheless, He says, they will dwell in the tents with Shem in the house of Jehovah. And Ham will be their servant in the house of Jehovah. So he's saying right there, every kindred tongue and nation will be saved at some time. This is the whole idea. Seth, the line of Christ, the seed of the woman, will be a blessing to all mankind. So when we come to Abraham, all of a sudden... It's not new when God tells Abraham, Look, out of you will come kings and nations. In you, I will bless all the nations of the earth. The peoples of the earth will be blessed in faithful Abraham. Already in the Old Testament, we find in the prophets. We also see it actually in Joshua. Remember when the people of Gibeah, who are Canaanites, trick him, remember, they come around a long way and tell him they've been traveling for so many months and their sandals are worn out, the food's got mold on it. And Joshua doesn't go to the Lord. Remember what the, what the uh, penalty was? You shall be slaves of Israel for the rest of your life. Well, that didn't sound too good. You shall wait on the priest in the temple. You will be circumcised and be part of God's kingdom and part of His family, His church. Though you are slaves, you will still serve in God's house. Remember Ham? You'll serve, you will serve Shem 
and Japheth. Remember David said it's better to be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord and to dwell with the, with the, with the sinners. God blessed them and shows us the nations will be saved. And little by little, Nineveh comes to the Lord. And we see in the household of David, Beth, you see Jews had accepted any in Gentiles. And so now we see when we get to Isaiah, Isaiah tells us about the Gentiles in the day of the Lord. The Gentiles will come. Haggai has already told us. And I will shake all the nations and the desire of all the nations shall come. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. That was God's intent to save men and always was to save men of every kindred, tongue, and nation. But He works through His covenant and works through His, his system to bring the Gentiles in. And now it's come. This is a very important passage for us as Gentiles. It is right here that Christ is going to point out and He, as it were, turns His face. They said we would see Jesus. It's as though Jesus is now turning from the Jews because shortly they will be driven out. In the book of Acts, the Jews persecute the church. They drive them out and it says, and they were driven out of Jerusalem. And the gospel went to Jerusalem, to Samaria, to Antioch, and to the uttermost part of the world. As they were driven out, the gospel was taken to the Gentiles. And so now we see these men are a picture of, of the beginnings of the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant in which God says, I will send men of every kindred, tongue, and nation. And that was John's definition for world in the book of Revelation. That God had chosen out of the world men of every kindred and tongue and nation. That was the world to Him. And so now we see as these men are talking to Christ, they said we would see Christ. And now it says, and Philip, whose name means horse lover, who was from Bethsaida, not far from the border of the Syrophoenician border. He was also named Philip, which was a Gentile name. So was Andrew. Now often Jews in Jesus' day had a Greek name and a Hebrew name. But Philip and Andrew used their Gentile names all the time. We see that they come. And to Philip, and they take, take them to Jesus. And now notice what Jesus says as they go. Take him, and in verse 23 it says, And Jesus answered them and said, As they come to Jesus, these Greeks, this is the turning point. And they say, Jesus answered them saying, The hour is come, and the Son of Man should be glorified. See, I believe when he says that, there's two aspects of this idea of his glorification. He realizes he has come to do the will of the Father. He says, my hour is now come. All the way through John, he says, my hour's not yet. My hour is not yet. But now he turns to these Gentiles and his response is to them. The hour is come. The fulfillment of the covenant of Abraham in my blood has come. This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. 
And what's that mean? That means the Jews' day is over. Now the gospel will go throughout all the world as God had promised Abraham. And we see, he says, the hours come that the Son of Man, that was Jesus' favorite title for himself all through the gospels. The Son of God, the Son of Man. He had become man, and this was why he had come, become man, that he might die for man's sins, that he might take away the sin of mankind, uh, of man and mankind. That I mean, all those who are saved are mankind. It doesn't mean every single individual person, but all those the Father had given to him before the foundation of the world, made up of Jews and Gentiles. But now, he says, now he must be glorified. First of all, he is glorified as he turns to these Greeks and he understands now his time has come to bring them in. It's, it's interesting. At this very point in time, the Jews dominate the church from the Old Testament on to this point. They dominate in the church. The first, first people who come into the church are Jews, those who believe Jesus now. At Pentecost, it's mostly Jews who come in. And you see there, it was men out of like 10 nations who are mentioned on the day of Pentecost, but they're Jews. There could be many proselytes in there too, but at the same time, Jews. And they take the gospel back with them. But now, when Jesus sees these Greeks, now must the Lord be glorified. All along he says, I have come but for the household of Israel. He came to his own, says John, but what? His own received him not. And so now we see the gospel as it goes. And he, this is the turning point. It's slow, but it's the turning point now. And he turns to the Gentiles. As Paul later on says, now I'm turning from the Jews and I'm turning to the Gentiles. The Jews will not believe. I'm turning from the Jews and I will become the apostle to the Gentiles. And so Christ says, I will be glorified. So he's being glorified in the fact now he understands the world will come after him. He has the hope again now that salvation will be going out of Jerusalem to Samaria to Antioch where the first Gentiles believed and then to the uttermost parts of the world. And so it is we see as Christ draws that picture. He gives his promise to Abraham in Galatians chapter 3 where Paul says Christ is the fulfillment. It's there that Paul tells us you are a child of Abraham if you belong to God. By faith you belong to God. By faith you are the children of Abraham because as Abraham believed again we are in Abraham. He's our response. He's our representative. By faith you are the children of Abraham. You're no different than the Jews. The Jews are blood relatives. And most of them, that's all it is. There are those who do believe and become part of the new covenant church. But now again, we see that in this glorification, but now notice also he says, he's glorified in the Gentiles. He receives the honor and praise of God because now he's seeing the completion the, when it is finished on the cross. This is part of it. But now also he says, I must be glorified. The other part of that is he's just now been through a couple weeks in which he and everything he's doing, it's pointing to the grave, pointing to death 
on the cross. Lazarus has died. And in Lazarus' death, he sees his own death, but he also sees the death of all men. But he also sees the death of those who believe. And now he sees that in his death, his glorification comes. means he must first, as Lazarus did, die. But before he can get to the death, he has to be, again, proclaimed innocent. He has kept the law of God perfectly. Remember Christ said, I come not to destroy the law or the prophets. That means I've come not to save, throw any way of it apart, but I've come to fulfill every part of it. Every jot and every tittle will be passed, but kept in the law. And now He has kept that law perfectly for us in His glorification. As a man, He is perfect before God in the fact that He is God and man. His value as the God-man means that He can save a million worlds like ours because of His value and all that He has worth and done in the keeping of that law. He, again, says that we are in Him. And therefore, we are law keepers. We are counted. We have an accounting system and God counts us as those who have kept the law because we are in Christ as He is. But also He will die. And then he will be raised again, where then he will be again. He's glorified in his resurrection. And in his ascension, he's seated at the right hand of God the Father. But in that glorification, what's he done for? He has again reconciled man to God. He has reconciled man to God. There are two things that come in his reconciliation. He, first of all, as John the Apostle says, when he talks about it, remember, John and the rest of the apostles are still, most of them, going when they go into Asia and all around the world. They go to Gentiles in Gentile places, but they generally try to pick out the Jews. John in Ephesus has a, most, most commentary, men who've studied him, believe he had a very strong Jewish con, constitution of people in his church. But when he's speaking again, he speaks to us in in. In 1 John 2, he calls him, My little children, these things write I unto you, that you sin not. Now, he talks about the law. He talks about that we are not to sin. But if we do sin, and that if doesn't mean, it's possible you'll never sin, but it's when we sin. The idea. When we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. His righteousness is our righteousness. We have an act. We go to Him. That's what, why He tells us we are to continuously be confessing our sins. Because Christ, our law, our law, law keeper and our advocate, He's our lawyer as it was. He goes, He defends us. He's our intercessor there. And He says again, the righteous. And He, that is Jesus Christ, is the propitiation of our sins. Now, the idea of a propitiator means, again, in propitiation, there are two words. One's propitiation, one's expiation. Liberals always translate it just by word, the word expiation. But in Christ's work, He does two things. In His propitiation, that deals with the effect that Christ's righteousness, Christ's offering and sacrifice for us has on God the Father and His law. 
because of in propitiation, the judicial punishment is done away in Christ. He has taken our punishment. We were in Him. Therefore, He is our representative. And again, from the standpoint of that part, God is now reconciled to man. We don't say the world in the sense of every, every person because God has not been reconciled to every man, to the world. We can say the world. The world of man, but we, know we wouldn't say meaning the world, everybody's in it. So the first aspect that Christ does here in His being glorified, He first of all is glorified in us in that the work that He does brings us because we are in Him, we will be glorified with Him. And because we are saved and been brought to Christ, God gets His glory in us. Christ has done the work. He saved us and done, and He can say, these are mine. They shine for me. Okay. So God's reconciled. And then now in expiation, it is a real word, but there, there's not one without the other. When you have an argument, husband and wife, and there's a break in the family and there's a break in a marriage, unless both of you say, I'm sorry, we will reunite. We will be reconciled to one another. There is no reconciliation. One person can say, well, I'm reconciled. You could say, Okay, we'll say, you are reconciled to the marriage if, if, if it comes up. But it's no reconciliation until the other part and says, I will also reconcile. As long as they say, no, it's not for me. I'm not going to join back. It's not reconciled. But Christ has given us propitiation in which He has settled the wrath of God against us. He's reconciled us to God. And now, in expiation, that deals with how Christ's satisfaction applies to man the sinner it removes the guilt and the penalty of sin there's now no condemnation to those that are in christ jesus god man is reconciled to god this is what christ is doing when he talks about his glorification being glorified this is what happens when he raises from the dead he brings us to christ and then when john says Again, He's reconciled the whole world. He cannot, and it cannot mean He's reconciled every single individual. He's propitiated not on our sins, but the, nation, the sins of all the world. John is talking to Jews, for the most part, who think we're the only ones. And John said, no, for the whole world. He could have said, for the Gentiles also. Because if you are reconciled to God, you are saved. God is not reconciled to everybody. If you are propitiated for and you have expiation, you belong to God in every way that can be and you're not part of those who are lost and they have nothing to do with Christ. And so now, as John writes, this is the turning point in history where the Gentiles are brought in. They come in slowly. You see jailers saved. You see, Peter goes down to Cornelius. The Ethiopian eunuch is saved. Little by little. And then they begin. And by the 5th century, Rome is considered a Christian nation. I don't want to get into the definition of what Christian means, but, but they were Christians. The emperor of the Caesar was a Christian. Believing Christ had saved him. And so again we see Christ has fulfilled that all. Do you know Christ? Have you been reconciled to Him? Has He reconciled to you? 
There is no reconciliation until you are reconciled with Him. And He is reconciled with you. As long as you're outside, if you do not trust and believe Christ is the Son of God, and that He has died for you, and say, and believe those things, and trust in Him alone, and love Him and His law and His word, there is no, no salvation. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for the blessings you give us in Christ. We pray that you'd help us now to look to you every day, to know that you have been glorified and we have been glorified in you. And yet, Lord, we live in a world that's sinful. But Lord, you've told us we can have victory in Christ. Lord, you've said again, you will return for us. And we pray, Lord, that we would, you would come quickly. And we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.